Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Well, Neffet finalises their recommendations for the lifting of restrictions this afternoon, but will the government deviate from their advice? As the fallout from the Beacon Hospital controversy continues, can the public feel confident in our vaccine rollout? Well, joining us on the panel is Fine Gael TD and Minister of State for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke, and Labour Party TD, Aon O'Riordan. Ireland's growth forecast was downgraded for 2021 by IBEC, but the group says light will begin to creep in with the vaccine rollout. And later, with the public's patience hanging in the balance, what must the government do to keep the public on side? Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag tonight VMTV. Virgin Media news reporter Nicole Guernan joins us live from government buildings. We understand, Nicole, that that Cabinet subcommittee meeting just wrapped in the last couple of minutes. We understand that there will be some easing of the restrictions tomorrow, but that it will be minimal and it appears it will be on a rolled out phased basis. What else can you tell us? Yeah, that's right, Keira. So some cabinet ministers have been leaving in the past number of minutes, but many more still inside. It has been a very lengthy meeting because obviously we were expecting just some of the restrictions to be eased next Tuesday. But now, as you say, it appears that restrictions might be eased on a phased basis. And the thinking behind this seems to be that NEFET wants to see how things go, see what trends are emerging, but also it will give the public a roadmap to work towards and know what can be eased and when. So it might start off with things like that five travel limit being eased first of all then hopefully getting children back to school after the Easter holidays then perhaps construction there also seems to be a focus on trying to get children back training but of course that might mean that adults might have to wait before they get back to their sports and their training so obviously this will allow NEFA to assess the risks as we go but it might also give the public some hope and many ministers have been keen to give the public some hope including the public expenditure minister Michael McGrath who said that on the way into the meeting this evening However, the Taoiseach was pressed on this earlier on today and he wasn't giving anything away before tomorrow's announcement. And speaking of giving anything away, we know Neff had had a lengthy meeting today. Do we know uh, what their line of thinking was, what their fears perhaps might be, what their advice to government might include? Well, Kira, they have a number of concerns at the moment. Obviously, we're seeing those case numbers still stubbornly high, kind of stuck between 500 and 600 cases per day. Today, there was one further death, 539 cases, and our five-day moving average of cases up at 591. Also concerned about the uh, age profile of the cases, for example, today, um, 73% under the age of 45, the median age 32. So we are seeing uh, more younger people contracting the virus as well. And uh, NEFET also concerned 
concerned as well about the um, occurrence of that B117 or so-called UK variant, which does seem to spread very rapidly. Also raising concerns as well about um, people having more close contacts, increased mobility across the country. We've seen new figures which shown that more people are moving outside the 10k limit. And um, so Neffet really concerned about this and over the next number of weeks. So that might be behind uh, the suggestion that we could see um, a phased easing of restrictions as opposed to easing in different blocks. And uh, Neffet also hoping that um, if we don't ease too early, they want to take a more cautious approach, that we might be in a bit of a better position by the time it comes to the summer with regards to vaccinations. There is some good news though in terms of our hospitalisation figures. They are remaining quite stable. There was a little bit of an increase today um, up at 331 people in hospital, uh, 70 of whom are in ICU at the moment. And we understand has been reported this evening that Nevit are looking for additional countries to be added to that mandatory hotel quarantine list, including some countries in Europe. Yeah, this is quite interesting here. So um, the, the Irish Mirror has this story this evening suggesting that some um, big name European countries where incidence rate could be quite high might be added to the mandatory hotel quarantine list. At the moment, just 33 countries on the list. Uh, Austria being the only European country at the moment. And uh, the, obviously this is not the first time that Neffet has recommended this. It recommended it all the way back last year. So it will be interesting to see whether um, the Cabinet Subcommittee has given any um, further thought to this and how far they're willing to go if they are willing to take it up because we do know that up until this point they have been very reluctant to introduce a blanket ban on uh, a blanket in introduce a blanket uh, mandatory hotel quarantine all right we will leave it there but thank you for that update nicole gernon and also on the line this evening we have political correspondent for the irish daily mail craig hughes Congre craig you broke the story of the beacon hospital on friday but that story certainly not going away the non-executive board met this afternoon they've just issued a statement what did they say yeah, so the board released a statement tonight, first of all, apologising for vaccinating the 20 teachers at St. Gerard's private school. This is, of course, the school that the chief executive, Michael Cullen's children attend. Uh, of course, but we also had revelations in the mail that Mr. Cullen personally phoned the school uh, to offer the vaccines to the teachers. Uh, there also, a creche associated with the hospital uh, was, was also received vaccinations for their chief executive. And tonight, the board said they're going to conduct an independent review into things, but they announced uh, sorry, what they didn't announce was that no one would be stepping aside. At this point, Craig, what questions remain unanswered? What questions have the Beacon Hospital perhaps been unwilling to respond to journalists to? I guess the question everyone wants to know is how far does this go? Uh, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly was in the Shannon today and he faced questions that we needed a full audit rather than just a, a top level review, a full audit of all vaccinations given at the hospital. And the public, I'd imagine at this point, Craig, are beginning to ask questions, aren't they, about the fairness of the vaccine rollout. Do you believe from your own research that there are widespread issues within the vaccine rollout and questions around the transparency of the vaccine programme? Yes, yes, I do indeed. Uh, the, the Beacon Hospital, uh, of, course, of course, is one is one example. There's been other issues as well with the vaccine rollout, from from the IT system to whether it's the way people book it to the personal data that's kept. So I think the pressure is coming on to TDs and, and senators to really act on this to restore faith in in the vaccination program because that's that's key to this to this working smoothly. 
And in terms of what the government can do now uh, with what's happened at the Beacon Hospital, we've had the Taoiseach say it's repugnant. We had um, Stephen Donnelly saying he's written to the board with a number of questions. What else can they do at this point? Well, so a number of cabinet ministers that I was speaking to want the government to, to act through the National Treatment Purchase Fund and review all the business that any state apparatus does uh, with the Beacon Hospital to apply pressure that way, seeing that as really their only one, uh, one move that they have. All right, we will leave it there. Uh, Craig Hughes from the Daily Mail, uh, thanks for your time this evening. And I'm joined, as I said, in studio by Peter Burke and by Aon O'Reardon. Aon, I'm going to start with you. Um, as we heard there, the Beacons board met today. They've issued this statement. They have unreservedly apologised again and said there's going to be an independent review about what happened here. Are you satisfied by that? No, uh, I think at the very least the CEO has to resign. And I said this on Friday and the Labour Party said this over the weekend. Um, what has happened here has, has really hurt an awful lot of people in the country when you see that the CEO of the Beacon Hospital treated these vaccines like they were his own. And they weren't his own vaccines. And then he, in doubling down on the privilege that the Beacon Hospital uh, has uh, in terms of the uh, of the private nature of the uh, of the hospital, uh, he managed to make contact with a private school that he has a family connection with, uh, and offered these vaccines as if they were his own his own property. So, uh, from our perspective, um, uh, he has to step down uh, as a minimum. But again, it's not a public hospital, so it's 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 a private entity. So it. There is a difference there. But I think what's, what's been said by Craig is absolutely correct in, in terms of the public faith and the entire programme. Like we've all, as individual TDs in our constituencies, had, you know, stories and heard rumours of, you know, this person or this entity or, or, or this group has gotten vaccinations because they know somebody. And we haven't raised these things. We haven't really uh, pursued that because I don't think it's good for the entirety of Irish society to think that there is something untoward going on. And there has been issues with individual rollout and problems in GP clinics. On the whole, we've tried to manage that. But this story, uh, and it's obviously more than a story, it's, it, it has been verified, it really cuts to the heart of what people feel is a potential deep unfairness. So you so, don't accept what the CEO said, which was, look, we made a mistake, no, I apologise, no, no. and I was acting no, under pressure at the time. This happened previously uh, in the Coombe, but there was no guidelines previously, OK? And uh, I think people can accept teething problems with the system. Somebody made a mistake because they didn't want the vaccines to go to waste. And, all right. and as, re as, a, as a reaction to that, in fairness to government, uh, guidelines were put in place. This individual knew these guidelines and didn't adhere to them. Uh, and, you know, in any other functioning democracy, uh, he would have already had seen uh, the error of his ways and done what is best for the hospital, which I think would be to resign. Uh, Peter, what do you think is best for the hospital and for the integrity of the vaccine rollout programme? I think, first of all, it's very damaging to the integrity of the programme because, you know, like Aon has articulated there, I've had so many people with underlying conditions, even frontline workers who are patient-facing, may not be working in hospitals, but maybe providing other services, who are so frustrated and really need the vaccine. And then you see a decision like this when there's a very clear list by NIAC in terms of an order of priorities. So I see there is an investigation going into it. And heads should roll on foot of that investigation if, as articulated there, that uh, he phoned, um, phoned the school himself that, and the basis that her children were in the school. It's totally reprehensible, totally unacceptable, and it should not happen. So the government wants to see heads roll here. They want the board to hold those responsible to account. Well, first of all, subject to the inquiry. We have to 
allow due process first. It's going to be an inquiry. But I'm sure it's absolutely in the interest of the Board of Directors to uphold the reputation of the Beacon Hospital as well. I suppose uh, I'm just thinking of people watching tonight who'll say, we appreciate maybe there needs to be due process, there will be investigation, but does that just kick the can down the road until this isn't such a political hot potato? No, I think you have to have full accountability here. And accountability just isn't a word. We really, really need you know, action on foot of this inquiry because this is the vi biggest vaccine rollout in the history of our state. It is so important to protect the integrity of it and those that are so badly in need of getting the vaccine quickly. Are you one of those ministers who thinks we need to cut all business links with the Beacon Hospital or do you think that's sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face? Yeah, I wouldn't go that far as yet because I'd just be careful in terms of what unintended consequences could happen from that and what services. I'm not just fully aware of the level of service that we're having through the NTPF with the Beacon Hospital. I'm sure it's fairly substantial. We see how important those services are for people who are in long term on the waiting list. But on foot of this review, and this is critical, the Board of Directors have to take action here. If they want to protect the reputation of their hospital, and the government obviously has an absolute skin in the game to ensure the protection of the vaccine programme, and that's why they've taken it away from the hospital immediately. So you don't accept then what's been said here, which was, look, I acted in the best interest of the vaccine rollout. I didn't want it going to waste. I acted under pressure. I apologise. You don't accept that that's good enough. Well, if you look at, if you're thinking logically, he knows the priority list. You could have a convenience store with frontline workers working uh, just beside the hospital. You have, I don't know how many GP surgeries. You have some very vulnerable uh, schools with intellectual disabilities and services for disabilities that people are providing that are in so badly need of that vaccine. He didn't have to go to County Wicklow. He could have just went outside the door of the hospital in a stone's throw. There are so many people who needed that vaccine. Are you concerned that there are other people who are getting vaccinated outside of the sequence that NIAC put forward? No, I got good confidence from uh, the chief executive, Paul Reid, who was interviewed during the weekend. And he basically said that everyone who gets the vaccine goes into a database base, and the HSE review that database. So they have to be sequenced in terms of the priority list or have underlying uh, health conditions. And I would be confident that they are doing that and doing that rigorously. And, and people should learn from this in terms of those who are uh, giving out the vaccine, that the stakes are very high here. It's very important. We have so many vulnerable people. There's a priority list that has been re-articulated so many times and we need to stick to it. Yeah, Keir, I just think from a political level and like, for example, this week we had a Fianna Fáil backbencher saying we need a, a junior minister in charge of the United Ireland project, and that's fine. Um, but I think we have, like, we've been articulating for, for a while that we needed a minister in charge of the vaccination uh, project, because as Peter quite rightly says, it is the most important project from a government level in our lifetime. And is Stephen Donnelly not that person? Well, I think in fairness to Stephen Donnelly, and the, he has a huge amount of, of uh, responsibilities under his remit. I think it would be a good move if, the, if the, the government were to reassess our suggestion of having a dedicated Minister of State within uh, the Health Department. So when an issue like this comes to the fore, that you were, we have a point person within government that we can identify and that person can be seen as being the public face from, from politics as, as being in charge of this rollout to interact between government and bring him across. And you don't and think it's too saying. late for that at this well, point, given the damage it, that I don't, think it's, I don't think it's ever too, too late to do the right thing. Uh, and I think it, could, it should have been done heretofore. I think it could be done, you know, very easily from this point onwards. Um, do you think that is something that should be considered by the government, that we need an individual to 
be held to account for the vaccine rollout alone. I'm thinking of Paul Cullen's piece today in the Irish Times where he said 220,000 vaccines have been handed out to frontline workers, but when he went to the HSE and asked for a breakdown of those figures on two occasions, they refused. They said they just simply didn't have that information. Do we need to have an individual that we can hold to account to ensure the integrity of the programme is protected? Now, I think we have good safeguards there through the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, through the HSE. We have experts that are absolutely at the height of the profession overseeing this. So I think the Minister can get good assurance from that. And, you know, it's a very frustrating time for people because the only thing that's limiting vaccine rollout at the moment is supply. And hopefully next month, a million vaccines going out in April, May and June. That's a huge game changer for us. And I think that will change society. Uh, a million vaccines going out April, May and June. April the 1st is this Thursday. Ian, are you confident that we will be in a position to roll out those vaccines, that we have enough vaccinators at a very minimum in place? Well, we hope, to, we hope so. But I'm, I'm hearing horror stories about those who want to be involved who are putting themselves forward as, vac as vaccinators. And even though they're very highly qualified, they're being asked for their junior cert results. So, you know, I, I think that's something, again, if we had somebody from a political level, we could ask directly as to, as to how this could be streamlined on a much more efficient basis. Look, if government succeeds, we all succeed. And we all, right across politics, want to see this, um, you know, uh, benefiting the entirety of society because the lift it gives to a family when somebody does get a vaccination is huge. And as we, as we you know, creep into the summer, it's going to really see us turn the corner on this. Uh, and I think that we're all on the same page on that. And um, we've been told that there's about, I think, 10,500 trained vaccinators out there. Do we know how many we need Peter, in order to ensure we can roll out a million a month? Well, I think we have enough to roll out a million a month. Uh, last Thursday, 29,000 vaccines alone went out on that particular day. Uh, essentially, again, as I was saying, 95% of all supplies in people's arms at the end of each week. Well, we're talking week. about a major ratcheting up Absolutely. of supply. And we will deliver that. You know, 29,000 in one day, and that was still limited by supply. And we're expecting a significant order this week, I think 200,000 vaccines coming in. And, and how many vaccinators it, are we going to need to We have close to 12,000 at the moment now, over 38 centres, plus uh, working with our GPs, working with um, um, our pharmacists. I think we have sufficient vaccinators now. Supply is the only limitation. And if you think about it, if we have 3.7 million people to vaccinate, essentially, that are eligible for a vaccine. And we're going to be doing 200,000 people a week. 80% will have their first jab by the end of June. Okay. That's going to critically change where we are. I just want to move on to the announcement tomorrow. Can we expect a detailed plan from government? Not about what's going to happen next you know, Tuesday or next Monday, but what's going to happen in May and in June? Yeah, well, we have a plan. Our plan is to suppress and vaccinate. And it's detailed and predicated on a few simple metrics. You can't give a date for opening society if your variants are still highly in operation. You haven't got everyone What's vaccinated. The plan, then? But the plan is to reduce the number of cases which we have done successfully by the huge work people did. Secondly, to vaccinate people. And as I said, if you get 200,000 people vaccinated a week, that changes the calculation of the week. We're in the final mile of the journey now. And if you have underlying people, people with underlying conditions vaccinated, you know, those over uh, seven years of age vaccinated, that will change the calculus of the risk in this pandemic hugely. Is that good enough that the government say, look, we just can't kind of give you any sort of a dates or plans or rollout or timeline at this point? 
Well, look, I appreciate governments are in a difficult position. I mean, in, in previous occasions like this, like the eve, the eve of, a, of, a, of an announcement, we've had differing sort of, of mood music from different elements of government, and that hasn't happened this time. I think that's, that should be recognised. Governments are trying to balance two things, the mental health of the population, which is at breaking point, versus the, the COVID uh, emergency. And in terms of opening up, I would make these, this, this point. Like we have had a level of opening up over the last period of time. The schools have uh, reopened at primary level. Um, Fifth-years and sixth-years are back at secondary level. Uh, you know, care homes are now getting visits, uh, and childcare facilities have reopened. So a lot has actually happened in, in the previous period of time. If we do too much too soon, even though many people will be, you know, have huge sympathy for the construction sector and you know, outdoor activities and, and the 5K, we have to ensure that we can maintain schools being opened and that we ensure that, that first, second and third years can return to school. So now, would it's, you it's continue a, um, then with the labour suppression yeah, we strategy? Would. Well, would you, we, so you wouldn't open up anything, I'd take it next week, no, no, look, if, given if, where the numbers are at? If Nefesh suggests that they are comfortable and can support issues such as I've, I've mentioned there, construction and the 5K and, uh, and outdoor training and, uh, and activity, then we have no difficulty with that. But we do have issues, of course, about the, the hotel quarantine for more countries than, than was announced previously, the testing and tracing, the fact that we have walk-in centres now and they really should have been up and running a year ago. So we would have had a much more aggressive uh, suppression strategy from the beginning of the year. Having said that, it is a difficult balance. It's going to be a very difficult day tomorrow for a lot of people who are going to be disappointed when announcements are made or over the course of the week. Uh, but let's remember, keeping children in school is going to be very important and ensuring that those children who aren't in school get back into school is also going to be very important as well. All right, we're going to be um, discussing this reopening, this phased reopening that we believe is going to take place on a minimal basis from next week after the break. My thanks to Ian O'Reardon. Peter Burke will be staying with us and we'll also be joined by IBEC, who are calling for a roadmap to reopening. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Very welcome back. Well, Minister of State for Planning and Local Government, Peter Burke, is still with us. And we're also joined by CEO of IBEC, Danny McCoy. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Danny. Uh, we've been told minimal, tentative, cautious. These are the words being used to describe what's going to be announced tomorrow. What is it that IBEC is expecting? Well, I suppose on the back of today's IBEC report on the economy, uh, prolonged 
um, restrictions we've had this year. It's probably knocked about two percentage points off GDP, which is, you know, the bones are about eight billion euros. So this caution is not costless. We know that. But it is appropriate, given the uncertainties. But what we need from tomorrow, I think, is, is small incremental steps towards momentum back. Uh, the vaccination, I think, will determine how open the economy can be. But, you know, there are, there are elements here where there may be an excess of caution. We need the appropriate caution. And I think we can start to bring back some activities like outdoor construction. And also in terms of retail, you know, click and collect is part of that social dimension. Kids are growing during this period, you know, to get shoes, to, to get the seasonal clothes and so on. So we need to, you know, we need to be responsive to the change of season and some of the progress we've made. But, you know, it is a knife edge because we can see what's happening in Europe and we don't want to go backwards. That's the important point here. The vaccinations will be, the rollout will be the significant game changer. But for IBEC, it seems construction and click and collect for retail, for non-essential retail. Those are the two things you would like to see. At this, at this stage, at this the point. appropriateness. Clearly to have a roadmap, though, for the rest, you know, up to and including getting back to the office in time. And so that's what I'll require here is some of the how and the what. So, for instance, antigen testing is a really significant issue. I understand where Neffler are coming from with their gold standard, but we're not concerned about who is infected. It's whether they're infectious at the moment to go back into a work environment. And so we need to expand the, the arsenal of testing we have, which I think will be important, because vaccination in itself won't be enough. Even if you have 70%, that means 30% of people won't be vaccinated. They can keep infecting each other. Uh, Peter, I know you yourself have said you have concerns about construction not reopening. You want to see construction reopen. What is NEFIT's position at this point? Are they concerned about that? Well, naturally they're concerned because of activity. We have all our schools fully returning to capacity on the 12th. Obviously, we're trying to prioritise relaxing the 5K, which I think is very important for families, uh, and consider other options for them as well, because we know people are at breaking point. I think we all accept that. It's very difficult in terms of su suppressing this virus, and we do need to recognise that in a meaningful manner. But we also have to recognise the cost on the other end of the scale in terms of society. We know we're in a housing emergency. Uh, we know we need to get as many new homes supplied as possible. So we will be keenly looking at that. And I, as Minister, obviously, in that department, will be keen to try and get construction back. Absolutely. I think it's, it's a priority for us. And to get it back as of the 5th of April, do you think? think or in this next phase? What we're going to see in this plan is a number of phasing items over the next number of weeks. Uh, and that will obviously... Uh, first of all, trying to get our schools back on the 12th. I think that's very important. You know, we have to see how the virus reacts to that when all our schools are back. Obviously, see how the virus is reacting to whatever relaxation is going to be in the 5K rule. And we have to look at construction in the, in the round uh, in, you know, observing the results of those items. So I would say you'll see a phasing over the next number of weeks. And I hope that construction will be considered as part of that. But if Neffet have real concerns about construction reopening, are government willing to go against Neffet's concerns and Neffet's advice and reopen construction? Well, look, I, I know it's very difficult and Neffet will have concerns among a lot of things because Neffet are obviously, Neffet can obviously, like us all, see that goal there, that once we get a significant proportion of our uh, population vaccinated and if you have a population of 3.7 million that are eligible for the vaccine and you're going to be vaccinating 200,000 people a week from April they can see if you hold off for another month that's 800,000 people with their uh, first dose additional 
that wouldn't have had if you had opened a little bit earlier. And with a variant that's so transmissible, you know, you can see why they would think that. But we have to balance that. Government will have to make the decision based on effort advice. They had NIAC in as well, they have the HSE in, and they also have to consider mental health items and other issues that people are experiencing in their daily lives. Does NEFIC not consider uh, the mental health of the nation when it's giving its advice to government? That, it, that's not it, their role. Yeah, well, their public health, it, it would, but I suppose their role as well is that, you know, if you have uh, ICU beds at capacity, if you have our health staff who have given so much over the last year and a half at breaking point, what effect that has in society. And it's a fine balancing act. Like I always say you would want the wisdom of Solomon to get the right balance tomorrow. That's absolutely no doubt. Do you in expect that. full reconstruct or construction to reopen? I'd say it's a big ask to get full construction open. I think we, my view is I would hope that we will try and prioritise uh, residential construction. Now, that's dependent on uh, NEFID advice. They obviously have to discuss that with the government. But I do think, you know, socially, looking at um, society and the effect that not having a home or those who are renting okay. when waiting to have their home renovated is huge would, at the moment. Would that be enough for your members if even residential construction was allowed to resume next week? I think gradual is the, is the name of the game here. For the rest of the business community, to start to see those first ones start to move, to start to open means that your time will come. But if they don't start on those first ones, then everyone's feeling a bit hopeless. Um, and I think about no Neffet mention of click and collect there at all. No, that's uh, not been certainly There's so many uh, things <laughs> to cover them all. Um, but you know, as you go as you go across the economy, it's it's clear we need to start moving this in incremental steps. The sooner we start, the better. We're not talking about a large reopening, given the precariousness of uh, where we are with the virus. But it is it is important to say that you know when when we, we cite Neffet, clearly they they have a singular objective in terms of the entire health system. But the economy is part of the driver for the health of the. It's, it's a feedback loop here. And we've had a prolonged restriction. We need to start to see some of this easing up. In terms of the growth at IBEC forecast today, 3.1% for GDP, if it was looking just at the domestic economy, what would that growth be? How is it faring right now? Yeah, so, you know, from last year, we know that the economy actually grew by 3% as well, which is actually a global phenomenon. But within there, the domestic economy was down about 9%. And then some of the sectors that are actually exposed to congregation, um, like events, like pubs, restaurants and the aviation. They were down devastating amounts, like 60, 70, 80%. But that means that there are some domestic businesses that have actually done well during COVID. We must acknowledge that. And they got to do with home furnishings, electrical, and people have found other channels to get out there. But what we need to be concerned about as well is, as other countries will get out faster than us because of the vaccination rollout, we can't allow ourselves to be too far behind. And so restrictions on international travel, which may seem like a good idea, but they're, you know, are they going to be effective or not? Because they will have brand damage to us, particularly if we're going to go for other EU countries. Well, what has do been you flagged. make then of um, the reporting this evening that NEFIT is looking for other European countries to be added to that mandatory hotel quarantine list? Well, I think that that can be justified on the grounds of the of the uh, vaccine, not the vaccine, but the, um, the virus uh, levels in those countries. But there's more to this. There's our international reputation as a globalised hub, the thing that actually gave us the resources to get through COVID. Other societies haven't been as fortunate in Ireland and have had to open up earlier with bigger costs to their society in terms of debts, morbidity and so on. The economic model here allowed us to actually contain this virus as much as any of the measures.
Okay, I just want to go to um, somebody we have standing by on Skype. It's the Vice President of the Irish Hairdressers Federation and owner of Zinc Hair and Beauty, Lisa Eccles. Lisa, you're very welcome to the programme. I don't think there's any real expectation that uh, hairdressers will be allowed to reopen or will be part of this next phase. So what is your industry hoping to hear tomorrow? Yeah, I think all indications have been so far that we're not going to be reopened in this first easing of restrictions. Um, some sources have said it could be June, possibly May before we get open. So really all we're looking for is a little bit of clarity. Our businesses have been closed since December 24th. Last year, we proved to be one of the safest environments, one of the safest industries when we were open with really strict protocols on getting clients in the door to keep them safe and to keep our team safe. So we just want the government to really acknowledge that, look at us as a safe industry and try and get us open as soon as they can deem is possibly safe for us to, to open. And what would you say then, Lisa, to those members of government who say, look, it's just simply not possible at this point. We don't know enough about the virus and the new variants and even the guaranteed speed of the rollout to give dates and data at this point. You'll just have to wait another maybe four or six weeks before we can give any kind of uh, update for your industry. Yeah, look, we totally understand, like the government are in an awful position in that, you know, we're all figuring this out as we go along. But if you did look towards Europe, um, European countries have hair salons open um, they deemed them to be an essential service much earlier on they recognised the need for some of those elderly clients um, that really struggle to look after their own hair you know some of my elderly clients suffer with issues like osteoarthritis so we, we provide quite a valuable service in the community and I think we would just really plead with them to look at how safe our industry has operated and to try and get us open as soon as we can. There were a lot of reports uh, this weekend about the shadow economy in your business. Is it thriving, Lisa? I think at this stage, yeah, unfortunately, Kira, it's, it's a huge issue for the industry because people are desperate now at this point. Um, you know, a lot of people are still having to go to work and, you know, they, they want to try and still keep their hair looking good. So unfortunately, the shadow economy is going to have a huge impact on our industry. And I know a lot of salon owners are very concerned about this. And the only way that we can tackle that and operate in a really safe manner is to get salons back open. And that's really why we're just fighting for those salon owners. And finally, Lisa, I know at a bare minimum, your industry is looking for those who have been vaccinated to be allowed back in to see their hairdressers. Yeah, I think what we were looking at was the government were looking to see where there was possibly a room to, to ease restrictions for people who had been vaccinated. And what, what our thinking was, was if they said to us, look, you're not going to get open until June, why not maybe let us open two weeks earlier in May to look after those people, who all those heroic healthcare workers who've worked so hard in the past year to look after all of us and those elderly clients who really need a lift and they need something to look forward to. Even if we could get open those, like two weeks earlier in May could make a huge difference to a lot of businesses. And at that point as well, we would be hoping that over a million people would be vaccinated in the country. So we do feel that like that could be a really soft way of opening salons um, and then for uh, the bigger reopening in June. All right, we'll leave it there. But Lisa Eccles, thanks for your time this evening. Peter, any sense in that vaccine bonus model that Lisa's talking about? Yeah, there may be, and you can see uh, 
where Lisa really articulates there how well her industry did, and they did so well, there's no doubt in that. But I think it's not sector by sector. The common, common enemy is the virus in all of this. That's one thing that really stands out. But one thing that's clear is the data coming in from those who have, have been vaccinated in terms of Israel and countries that are advanced, in terms of transmissibility of those who are vac vaccinated if they contract the virus, seems to be very good. So there may be a space in that. Obviously, I'm not qualified enough in terms of to give a strict determination on it, but there may be an opportunity there. And we heard Lisa saying, look, we need some clarity, we need a plan, we need a roadmap, even if it's May, even if it's June, give us something. But Peter seemed to be indicating earlier the government aren't going to be in a position to do that because Neffet has too many concerns about the variant and the case numbers. I think what Lisa's saying as well, though, is the demand is there. I don't think any demand is actually gone. It's just suppressed. The real problem is, will the supply side be there? You know, Lisa talked about the displacement of people, maybe in the shadow economy, but in other sectors, people might may decide this is too precarious and go to seek another occupation. And I think we will see that there'll be huge demand for lots of our hospitality, and we may not actually have the supply this summer. So we need to give people advance notice that we will expect to be back so that we can plan, get people in the right place at the right time. How frequently should the government review these restrictions? Because we're hearing this evening it might be another six weeks before I, they review it again. Yeah, I think that's too long, actually. We, we, we've been now for a number of months. We need to start getting more frequency. Even if they can't make a decision, at least we know we will get that information because this prolonged restriction was kind of go away and we'll be back to you in a long time. I think that's really been dispiriting for people. To get more real-time information would be very healthy now. Is there a discussion at Cabinet about when um, you kind of come to the public again? Four weeks, six weeks, too long? I think the premise of the six weeks is that we will obviously try to relax a number of items over the six weeks. It's not just, as far as I understand, everything being relaxed, that they plan to relax next week. They're going to do it on a phased basis, like ensuring our schools are, are at capacity, that's okay, like having the 5K, and like other outdoor activities and sports, and some things that families may be able to do together. I think that's very important, that we give people relief in those key areas. Um, Neffet apparently have said this evening, look, the case numbers could remain where they're at, or much higher if we're not careful, until the middle of summer. Is that what you're hearing from them? I think they will potentially remain the way they are until we get you know, a larger number of people vaccinated. But even at that, you're going to, unfortunately, have a level of case numbers because we've seen, you know, we've had many arguments about zero COVID and all this type of stuff that now are shown to be almost bogus because we've had the most severe lockdowns in this country right back since last March. We never, ever got numbers, even under the old variant, into single digits or even much out of double digits. So it's very difficult. Danny, let's yeah. back in there. Communication's got a lot better. We may, we may not like the answer, but the communication's a lot better on this occasion. The gap between Neffet coming out and All the right. government making the decision I think is appropriate now. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Danny and Peter. And after the break, Pete Lunn from the ESRI on public compliance and how those suffering most from COVID fatigue are the least likely to break the guidelines. Welcome back. I'm joined now in studio by Professor Pete Lunn of the ERSI's Behavioural Sciences Unit and on Skype by psychotherapist Stella O'Malley. You're both very welcome to the programme. Stella, I'll start with you. How important is it that the public get a sense of hope from tomorrow's announcement? It's imperative because we've been kind of without a, a sense of, of certainty for some time now and it's really gone down very badly. 
Um, a lot of people are in a lot of mental distress. And I think uncertainty is probably the most difficult thing to handle in life. And even if it's bad news, we'd be better off being given a roadmap, being given something to work with, some sort of structure, a kind of a, a situation where you've got a system and this is what's going to happen. This is what we're planning to do. And yes, it mightn't work out, but the likelihood it is that it will. And I'm asking you know, the, the country that this is what we need. That will go down much better, even if it's bad news, than if they kind of go, mm, maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other, we're not really sure. That just really is mentally too difficult to handle. And yet, speaking to Peter Burke from the government there, it was quite clear that the government are very, very nervous about giving us any sort of a roadmap or reopening schedule in case they can't deliver on it. I know, and there's a lot of politicians who prefer to under-promise under and over-deliver because they think they kind of win more votes and they kind of surprise people. I don't agree with that. I, I think we have to try for accuracy and kind of in good faith, this is what we are offering the country. We're all aware of COVID. We all know that COVID has been cruel and very unpredictable and there's new strains. Everybody's aware of this, but you, you can't hide behind it anymore. We kind of were too jaded, we're too exhausted. And there's a, a real feeling that there's a lack of kind of civil obedience creeping into the situation because people just think, I, I don't know what's going on and I'm, I'm tired of it. So if there was a, a sense of leadership of, right, we need one more heave, we need one more kind of cohesive coming together, I think that would go further than kind of obfuscation. Because I just don't think that would work right now. Um, Pete, do you agree with that, that actually it's better to give some sort of a roadmap, even if ultimately you can't deliver on that roadmap? Uh, to be completely honest, I don't know. And actually, I don't think any of us do. Um, we tried to give a very concrete roadmap last year as we came out of the first wave, and that came with some very severe drawbacks. I mean, if you remember that the publicans were repeatedly given dates that then couldn't be actually fulfilled, and they'd put investment in, they put time in, that they felt that as acute losses. It was very distressing to think that this was something they were going to do, and they were going to put the investment in, and then it was taken away from them, you know, at short notice, because the numbers simply couldn't tolerate it. So I think there's a degree to which you cannot win with this. I think there's a degree to which you have to live with the uncertainty and given that you have to live with it it's about giving people strategies and trying to help them through it as much as it is trying to deny it but I mean I, I stress again I, I genuinely don't know I mean we're in unprecedented circumstances and no evidence can give you the right answer here I don't think. Well how then can the government if it is a bit of sort of an impossible situation how do they keep the public on side because they need the public on side don't they? Yes, they do. And I think in many ways the challenge hasn't changed since right from the start. What you have to explain to people is what is your goal and what is it that if we all do, we have the best chance of achieving that goal? And if you can explain that as clearly and coherently as possible, our research and other research in behavioural science will tell you that's your best chance of getting people to behave towards that common goal. And the common goal here is very clear. We are trying to prevent a fourth wave. We're trying to prevent a rise in infections until such a point that we have enough people vaccinated that that isn't a serious in terms of outcome. Because the danger is we're going to have hundreds or even thousands more bereaved families in Ireland again if we get this wrong. So there's a very clear goal and what we need is that coordinated behaviour to attain it. Uh, we heard Stella saying there, look, there's a sense that there's a growing amount of civil disobedience. And I think some of the CSO research would point to the fact that more and more people are breaching their 5K and indeed their 10K. What is driving people at this point to break the rules? So at the moment, there is a minority 
that he's pushing the boundaries of the rules and is in some case, br cases breaching them. And the most serious th thing there actually is social visits to homes, where we've seen an increase in our own data from around 5% of the adult population either having a visitor to their home that's a social visit or making a social visit each day. That's gone up since the end of January to more like 11.5%, so it's more than doubled. Now, you might think those are quite low figures, but that's several hundred thousand individuals every day engaging in a social home visit at a time when we've got numbers of five or six hundred infections a day. So you can see there's a link there and the decline in the infections has actually stalled as that increase in social home visits has gone up. But I really stress, yeah, people are pushing it, but it's a minority and that minority are putting the rest of us at risk. So what I really hope we manage to get across tomorrow is, look, we can increase people's freedoms. We can't do it much because the case numbers are not good. But what we can certainly do is we can increase people's freedoms and maybe get them outside. Because meeting at home in each other's homes is one of the really risky things to do here that's, not, that's preventing us from getting the numbers down. So I think as well as giving people extra freedom, there's a really important message. Do not meet in each other's homes. It's the high-risk thing to do. Get outside if you're going to meet people. But in terms of that... 10-11% that is breaching the rules and is, you know, um, meeting other people in other households, etc. What is driving them? Is it just fatigue? Are they fed up? Are they not as worried about the disease as they used to be? Or have they just had enough? So we've studied this pretty closely with a large representative sample, over 4,000 people. Um, and we're pretty clear what's driving it, actually. Interestingly, if you compare the people who say they are most sick and tired of the restrictions with the people who say they're least sick and tired of them, you get no difference in people's behaviour. Their likelihood of having a close contact, their likelihood of meeting other people outside their household, their likelihood of engaging in a social visit. You get no difference. What really matters is how worried are they in general about the virus? Do they perceive the restrictions as being coherent or contradictory? The more they see that the strategy is coherent, the more likely they are to follow it. And the final thing that really matters is that it's not how tired are you, it's how do you trade off the burden of these restrictions against the preventing the spread of the disease. In other words, it's your own selfish incentive putting up with this against the good of society. And it's the people who are making the sacrifices for the good of society who are behaving themselves and the people who are being more selfish who are not. And we can see that clear as day in the data. Yeah, I'm wondering, Stella, though, do those people who are sticking by the rules, no matter how difficult it is, at this point, three months in, a year in, but three months into this lockdown, do they now need to feel that they're being rewarded to keep them on site? Yeah, it feels like there's almost a division between those that are keeping the rules and furious at those that aren't, and those who think that the, the spirit of the, of the rules is more important than the letter of the rules. And that's kind of personality types. And I, I, I really, I feel very sorry for people who are feeling like, you know, it's all going wrong and it's other people's fault. I do think Pete's research was really makes sense and I do think that really more than anything if the people and I consider myself part of it if if we think that the rules make sense we will buy it if you follow me and if we don't we won't and I think that's the big hurdle I do think I really think with Pete's emphasis on if you could kind of get the kind of nation to say meet outside we get it we want people to meet because everybody's cracking up okay can you meet outside and not meet in each other's homes that's so simple that could carry, that could kind of get somewhere a lot further than perhaps complicated three and not in a half an hour and all the complicated so words. So clear communication. I, I think it needs to be sloganish. Do those people who um, are complying with the rules, do they need to see those who are not punished? Is that important, do you think? Uh, yes and no. 
So the research on this, again, gives a pretty clear answer to that, actually. So some degree of sanction is necessary, but if you overdo it, actually, it, it can backfire. Um, we know from our own research that deterrence isn't working here in the sense that the people who think they're most likely to be caught breaking the restrictions, it makes no difference to their behaviour whether they think they're likely to be caught or not. Deterrence isn't working. The primary deterrence is actually social disapproval. It's actually being disapproved of by your friends and by your peers, by your, your neighbours. Um, okay. One of the things that really means is how important it is for all of us to be picking our friends and family right. up on these things. So if you're not comfortable engaging in a social visit or having someone visit, be prepared to say so. All right, we have to leave it there, but thank you both for your contribution uh, this evening. Virgin Media Television's Donate for Dementia. The fundraising drive remains open. I'm sure many of you are aware of it, and we're still accepting donations. It's been a week-long awareness campaign, and it concluded last night with the broadcast of that wonderful finding, Jack Charlton, Dr. Documentary here on Virgin Media One. So far, €883,000 has been raised by you at home for the Alzheimer's Society, and the donation link is still there. To pledge €4, Euro, you can text the word memory to 5300 or make a separate contribution, donateformentia.ie. My thanks to all of my guests. I'll be back here tomorrow night at 10 pm, but until then, take care and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.